You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here. Today, to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, welcome to Thesis on Joan. I'm Megan, she, her. And I'm Holly, they, them. Thesis on Joan is a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join fan queers and theater professionals, Megan and I, as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folk from Brooklyn cabaret performers to people backstage and on Broadway. For many queers, theater has been an escape. This podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're headed as a community while queering the canon along the way. And today we're sitting down with Sulu Leonim. Sulu Leonim works at Theater of the Oppressed NYC with me as a joker and as program director. Most of the rest of their time is at home in Flatbush with their partner Spark and parenting two small kids. Sulu has been an actor, director, and theater maker. Hey, Sulu, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So, Sulu, we always start by asking our guests to share their name, pronouns, and if there's anything else you would like to share about how you identify. Yeah, I, uh, my name's Sulu. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I identify, uh, I grew up in Jersey. My parents are from England and Thailand and came right before they had me as a baby. Um, and I am gender wise as non-binary, um, and as a parent. (laughs) (laughs) Huge part. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So you started doing theater, doing more like avant-garde work with clowning and masks, Suzuki, uh, and other physical theater. How did you get interested in that style of theater? Yeah. Um, well, that start kind of came like right after, right as I was leaving college. Um, and I, so I'm another way I identify I'm 40 years old. <laughs> I think I'm at the point of my life where I'm reflecting like, you know, what is something that was about me and my interests and then also like just what was part of how the world works around me. Um, and specifically to that question, it feels like, when I was in high school, I look back, I was cast as an animal, a strange creature, a role for drag, um, a foreigner. Um, so as a, you know, Asian perceived person in a predominantly white space, <laughs> like roles that were not the ingenue. I remember being in high school and like just wanting to have one of those um, roles in midsummer and then not getting cast. Um and so, like, I, I do feel like that led me to, like, explore spaces where uh, gender and identity were, like, a lot more, like, creative or not the primary point of the role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, like, things like um, physical theater, um, things like puppetry, um, all, and, and then also to be in spaces, like the strongest link for me was that like I was, um, collaborating with people in college and we weren't using texts that other people wrote. We were creating devised work. Um, and that meant that our roles were all kinds of things and not one particular character. Um, and so going in from devised work led me into the spaces that I worked in beyond college. Uh, and 
the that those kinds of roles it was very exciting to me i love collaborating i loved being in an ensemble um i loved the physicality uh, i love playing animals <laughs> uh so it was a really great fit um for me and, and the kinds of things i loved exploring where i felt most creative do you have a favorite animal you play I was a turtle in two plays where I, um, could, you know, folded my knees, like lay on my, my stomach, folded my knees, um, folded my arms and, and would propel myself slowly, um, oh forward gosh. across a stage. If I was inside, I was also in a play that we did outside on concrete. So I had to build myself costume pieces. Oh, wow. Or I could drag my body across concrete, but I did love being a turtle. Was this a continuation of the same turtle story or is this two separate turtles? It was two separate turtles. I think it was just like, you know, you have one devised work where it happens and then you have another one where it's like, well, this seems like a good thing to bring back. <laughs> That's so funny. Knowing you, with working with you for the last three years, I would not choose a turtle for you, but yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And kind of going off of that, can you tell us a little bit more about your time doing drag and how you explore gender expression and performance? Yeah, I think that I first was interested in doing drag. In my senior year of high school, I was cast as El Gallo in the Fantastics. Um, and I think I was, I was a very good student in school. And so I was like, this is a male character. I will play a male character. Um, and something that's really like in my brain is that essentially my theater teacher had a um, cast meeting that that wouldn't work. Um, and the thing that I remember is that like, he asked people to look at me and, and say like, what, what do you see? Oh, okay. um, and people were like, and named features that were oh, wow. female. And, and so I guess it ended up being like a vague space, a tall person in a, long sweeping jacket <laughs> flirted with the girl. Um, <laughs> but I was disappointed and frustrated. And then, you know, as I went through college and, and out, um, especially just out of college, I collaborated with a dear friend of mine, Rafi Soifer. Um, and we did these strange cabarets in the backs of bars in, in Brooklyn and Manhattan. Um, and one of the things we did was a mashup of, the Mikado and Miss Saigon, um, <laughs> where he was essentially in a, in a kimono with the, the makeup and I was, um, mustache and, uh, that like, like soldier garb. Um, and I had so much fun in, in, in improvising and bar spaces, flirting with people, um, <laughs> Especially like that edge, because in so many spaces, I, I think most of the people in the bar didn't know what was going to happen. Um, it wasn't like, here's a drag show. It was more like, here's weird performances. So <laughs> there were a lot of people who had never seen drag and did not necessarily know if it was drag. Um, so they weren't like specifically gay bars? No, no. <laughs> Um, they were bars that would open up their back room for, you know, like, oh, you want to do your thing as long as we get the tab. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I think I, you know, I loved, uh, putting on a mustache, uh, like a real big, um, real big one. And, uh, and there was something, you know, like exciting for me. Miss Saigon was the first Broadway show I saw when I was a teenager. Um, and so to mess with it, um, <laughs> and look at it in other ways, uh, was, you know, we weren't doing whole productions, but just to take the bits of the material, um, that were embedded in my brain anyway and play with it was fun. Um, and, and the gender performance was fun. Um, I actually, oh my goodness. I, I don't think this was really fair, but I won a drag competition at the Montreal Fringe Festival. Oh my gosh. Wow. I don't think I was supposed to be competing. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> I think they had made a rule that there were no drag kings. Wait, why is that a rule? That's terrible. <laughs> I don't know. I just know that this was when uh, my partner and I were on tour. Um, and 
we were performing together. They came to recruit people. And I think they were trying to recruit Spark, who did was often a drag queen then, maybe had been one before, uh, but had said the invitation in front of both of us. Um, mm. And Spark didn't want to, and I did. <laughs> and I think that they um, didn't, you know, how are you going to say no? So I think what was right. unfair was that, like, I was the only drag king. Mm. Um, I wore a giant mustache and tiny red shorts and <laughs> had this whole like, uh, jock get up going on. And I had an amazing kind of partner competitor with the, the, the drag queen who was competing with me, who helped me do a keg stand. And <laughs> I and then like pretended to eat me out. Uh, while I was upside down, <laughs> while she was holding my legs in the air. So it was just, um, I just, a, you know, a height of the drag <laughs> performance that happened to me while I was on tour. It sounds like wow. you earned it. It doesn't sound unfair. It sounds <laughs> like you deserve to win that. <laughs> Thank you. When you did the, the drag show with Miss Saigon, did you play like the engineer or how did, how was that? It was more like, no, it was, I guess, uh, John or like the, a soldier character in relation to, to my friend's character. Um, okay. I will, I actually, I would enjoy embodying the engineer. <laughs> Such a great role. It's too bad that there are no Asian people who could have played it, you know? <laughs> well, the reason why I think about it often is because as I, you know, I said, I saw that show with my, well, I, I saw it when I was a teenager. I saw it with my family. Hmm. Um, which, I, my father is from Thailand. He grew up in Bangkok. Um, I think he was heavily disapproving of how Bangkok is portrayed. Um, but my sense was that he really enjoyed the engineer, like taking the engineer at face value. Like, hmm. yeah, blondes, limousines come to America. Like, uh, so that's what I continue to process around that role. <laughs> wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay. Speaking of touring with your shows, we have to mention Peg Ass Us, uh, which is described as a romantic sex ed burlesque you created and performed around 2011, 12-ish, um, with your real life spouse. And you describe it as a melt your heart sweet, get you wet sexy, Peter Pan's funny burlesque love story, a charmingly mismatched real life couple use puppets, sing-alongs, and comedy to guide audiences through the ins and outs of pegging, exploring the connections between sexuality and identity, and deliver the sexual education everyone deserves. I mean, how do we see this show? <laughs> Bring it back. Bring it. That's a, that's fascinating. Bring it back. Um, I mean, are you, are you legitimately asking if you, you will ever see it again? Yeah, sure. I mean, I would love to. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Uh, I think, you know, and we have talked, I think we, we created it. We took it on, um, we took it to fringe festivals and then did a couple other years of not exactly a tour, but performing it at different spaces, um, when we could get gigs. And when I thought about bringing it back, I, I think we both thought like, oh, well, we'd first have to do the work of updating it. And part of that is just that like so much um, has shifted in how people talk about gender and, and sexuality um, that I imagine that however we engage people around that, we'd want to, we want to shift, but also like our own um, gender identities have shifted a bit since we performed in that. Um, and we want to like something that, something that was integrated in that show is that we we're presenting a version of ourselves. We used our names. Um, and it was, uh, the arc of it was like, you know, us trying to understand each other while also telling bits of our story to the audience. Um, so yeah, I don't, somebody was, somebody once asked us, is there going to be a part two? <laughs> um, and, uh, I haven't, you know, we have embarked since on, uh, on parenting, which shifts the rhythm of our lives in, in terms of like ability to perform in the evenings. Um, so, so it's all kind of TBD. 
Sure. But how, how was the show received in the original incarnation of it in 2011, 2012? You know, it depended on the location because we, um, I think fringe festivals, we certainly hyped it up as, you know, sexy, edgy, um, and, and educational. Like we were, we were trying to engage people very sincerely and like, please think about what you, um, allow yourself to do. Um, and who's give, who's taught you what to do? Like, what are the rules and why? Um, and people responded to that. We became the, you know, the show about that thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're going to talk about butt sex. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's, quote, the guy. Oh. Um, <laughs> and I, um, I think we used packets of lube as, as handouts. I say, I think because the year previous, um, I was touring a show with my friend, Erica Kate McDonald, her show about her sexual identity that was called fluid, where we also handed out lube packets. <laughs> um, but so, um, you know, people showed up, they were ready to be, um, uh, excited. Um, I know there was at least one time where somebody brought a first date. People Amazing. were intentionally coming with their partners. Um, and then there were other spaces where, um, we got the opportunity to perform in places that were already embedded in the culture of teaching people about sex and sexuality, um, kink spaces. And so, uh, when, and, or even, you know, we had a performance at Brown University, um, that was hosted by the students at Brown who were trying to get people educated, excited, informed. Um, and so those responses were, I think we were very nervous about that because we felt in that context, like we're the newbies. Why are we even talking to you? Um, and there was a mix. Like, I think there was very deep appreciation that like there would exist a show to like represent people and share with people. Um, there was also sometimes nervousness uh, for, on, on people's part to like see, I think they were very concerned about how we would care for it. Mm. Um, and then there was just like general excitement. Like I remember like the Brown audience, they just snapped the whole way through and then they <laughs> raffled off dildos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's oh, what they man. should do for Broadway cares instead of like huge Nachman's t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. There was only, you know, like people definitely asked about like anger or walkouts or, you know, shutting the show down. Um, there was only one, um, one time we were performing at the Fringe Festival in Boulder, Colorado. Amazingly, um, we were hosted in a Methodist church. Um, so as soon as I got that location, I was like, please, I like explicitly <laughs> state in our application, like this show has nudity and sexually explicit content. Does the venue know that? And the venue was like, yep, we know. Um, but there was a guy who showed up and like within the first five minutes walked out and wrote a letter, but it didn't shut it down. Um, and then I remember we booked a show at a bar in Portland, Oregon, and it was very clear to me that the person who booked us hadn't really come, like she worked for the venue, but like maybe hadn't thought through what that meant because <laughs> the stage was within window view of the street. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> um, and I also like, I forget now, but I, I recall that Portland has, has very specific rules about like nudity in relation to bar space. Um, and I just remember the amazing bouncer, like as I, I could see his face kind of absorbing as we checked what was about to happen. And then as the show started, like making sure he was as close to the door as possible. Um, uh, you know, so it's one of those things where, you know, like the, the tech writer, the details, you really try to tell everybody exactly what to expect and it doesn't always go as planned. But. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What was it like creating that show with a romantic partner? And have you talked about, I know you said it's been hard now because your parents, but would you want to do it again? Uh, we, so we met at the Fringe Festival um, where I was touring with my friend Erica 
Um, and doing a show with a brand new romantic partner was definitely on my checklist of don't do that. (laughs) Um, but it was happening. Um, and I think what I absorbed from it was that it meant that we had to be very present and very communicative about what was going on because we were also sharing histories, sharing theories about desire and then figuring out how to craft it into a performance. So it meant things like got very processed in a way that actually felt, um, a real amazing opportunity, like a gift that we got at the beginning of our relationship. Um, it was also really hard and it meant like that we started arguing about things <laughs> right at the beginning because it wasn't just like, what does this character do? It was like, no, this is a representation of me and this challenge, you know, for anybody who's made material that is autobiographical is like, what am I okay with like being semi-fictional or like not including this key piece just to serve the show? Um, which was really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, we also toured, so it meant traveling together in very, um, you know, and it, it, we fringe festivals put people up in other people's spaces. So we also had to like learn to communicate about needs, learn to communicate about plans um, strategize together when things went south with the arrangements that the place gave us. And it did sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it was accelerated, I would say. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, some, we both work for theater of the oppressed NYC right now. We haven't collaborated directly in that work um, for a while, but we get to riff ideas off of each other And I think it would be interesting to collaborate with each other again, you know, and maybe even, you know, that would be what we need right now in our parenting. There's a lot of creative collaborative energy that is going into our parenting right now, but it does have that tinge of feeling like obligatory rather than our creative space. It's really amazing if you're both in a Zoom meeting uh, to watch like one child be with one parent and then run from one screen to the next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're trying to balance, you know, with that, we're trying to be like, well, who gets to have the door closed and who's juggling, right? Yeah. Oh, so many, so much respect to you and Spark for doing all that. Yeah. Especially now. I'm sure it's just insane. It's well, this is um, the, these couple of weeks have been learning what how they have to be on Zooms or Google Meets for school, um, which is really hard right now in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And we're definitely going to bug you some more about parenting questions later. Okay. So we'll come back to that. Um, but what made you or what caused the choice to kind of move more away from performance and physical theater into the world that you're in now? I think there was part of it that was committing more time to having a, an administrative job at Theater of the Oppressed NYC. Previous to that, I had a day job um, that was awesome, but it wasn't theater, um, and it afforded me a lot of flexibility to um, take time off for tour, um, adjust my schedule if I needed to show up for rehearsals, and... Theater of the Press NYC at the beginning, you know, still had some of that flexibility, but um, it kind of be- fell more into the rhythm of like having a day job and, and trying to balance my energy. Um, and so I was still doing occasional performances in, the, in its early years. Um, and then really parenting shifted my schedule a lot. Um, a spark and I, began parenting as foster parents. So that means that we also had a lot of times where we had to be bringing children to appointments. Um, And honestly, we, you know, having small kids means there's a lot of work going on at home. So we had a lot, most of our energy was, okay, who's home when? Um, And how do we keep that balanced with each other? And that, that math means that then, you know, taking a night out, um, of, of the house, we're either doing things like alternating or 
you know, making sure it happens this many times a month. And with theater, you know, rehearsals are like, okay, you're, you're going to be in rehearsal every evening for this many weeks. Um, mm-hmm. And it didn't feel like that was a good fit for being able to be present for the children in our care. Um, and also be, being able to balance the responsibilities to each other. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes sense. And you're one of the founding members of Theater of the Oppressed NYC. How did you find TO, Theater of the Oppressed and what was it about TO that hooked you? I had two very close friends who were learning about it. Um, Rafi, who I mentioned earlier, actually spent years in, in Brazil, um, had worked with Augusto Boal um, and was telling me about the work that he was doing there in Brazil. And it was a little peripheral to me. It was curious, interesting. But then I um, was living in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and working with Falcon Works Theater Company there. They have a program where middle school age um, children write plays and members of the community come together to act, direct, uh, and produce the plays. So I was doing that, um, and the uh the director of falcon works reg flowers um started bringing some theater of the oppressed methodology into those community spaces and also brought concrete justice to perform in red hook and concrete justice was the troupe that my friend katie rubin um had established that was the troupe that then grew into the organization that is Theater of the Oppressed NYC. So I was very attracted to the Theater of the Oppressed that I was experiencing, the parts that were physical and interactive and improvisational. The fact that it it engaged the audience was something that I had been looking at in my own work a lot, you know, Peg As Us was not just a, a nice show that people watched. We talked to the audience, um, you know, we asked them to respond to things. And at that point with Peg As Us, what I felt very responsible to do whenever we were performing it was to also have a conversation with people who were doing work on, on sex and sexuality. So we would always have a panel discussion, right? But Forum Theater, which is part of Theater of the Oppressed, makes that conversation very present with the audience as the experts. Um, and so that's how I met Katie Rubin. Um, she came and did another workshop in the neighborhood. I stayed in touch with her. She did a training. Somehow Spark ended up coming up, coming with me to the training as well. Um, and I asked her, you know, like, how can I keep working on this? And at that point, she was looking at how to expand the theater of the oppressed work that she was doing. Um, and she gathered some folks who had been in the same training as I had and sat down and, and talked through the ideas of actually forming an organization. So we, we started that. And at that time, she had started a conversation with the Ali Forne Center. Um, which is an LGBTQ youth space that provides shelter and services to young people who are experiencing housing instability and homelessness. And I had been doing theater projects to support folks I knew at the Hetrick Martin Institute, um, which is also an LGBTQ youth space in the city. So she and I um, ended up collaborating together as a form of training for me with our a collaboration with the Ali Forney Center, which ended up being an um, ongoing collaboration. Theater of the Oppressed NYC does two play building cycles a year with young people who are affiliated with that space. Um, so that's how I kind of got into it and stuck around. And because I, in my day job work, had been doing a lot of office administrative bookkeeping, organizing, project management. Um, that is the early role that I also had in the office. And you did so much heavy lifting and the like admin paperwork of forming a nonprofit that when I came in a few years ago, I'm like, oh, there's so many good systems and things in place that made it a lot easier. <laughs> well, I, so my previous work was working with engineers. Um, so engineers are all about the databases and the spreadsheets um, and 
I, you know, I, I, I saw that there was an opportunity to bring that over. Nice. Whether or not the artists like it. <laughs> <laughs> and I know some do. I know some do. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you talk a little bit more about, you mentioned the Ali Forney project. There's some other um, works that you would like to highlight from Theater of the Oppressed or different things you guys do in the community. I know there's so many. Yeah. I mean, I am really excited with how we're thinking about shifting the nature of our work. Um, I, I do think that in the very early stages of Theater of the Oppressed NYC, we thought we, we, most of the people, um, doing the facilitation came from theater backgrounds. And I do think there is an idea in the theater world that if we make a play about something, it will support whatever needs to change <laughs> about the, the, the thing, the problem, if it's a problem. Um, and, as we have been collaborating with folks who have advocacy backgrounds, as we have been trying to use these plays to engage people in conversation, we have identified the need for our own organization to get our own better political education and then use our plays to also support political education, um, thinking about ways that it's a performance on a stage is not the only tool we have. We can use the performance in a meeting room with stakeholders and that introduces actors to politicians and starts conversations that people haven't had before. Um, and so people have said that, that um, it, it can be a way to get people to connect or at least disrupt the, per, the barrier is real or perceived that people have. Um, and I think I'm excited about how we get more strategic around that. The past couple of years has been an exploration of taking a troupe that is, highlights our m- more experienced actors. So they really understand what we're trying to do with the tool. And it's our rapid response troupe. And building their ability to show up in different spaces and adapt form theater to the need of that space, whether it's um, holding a, a smaller dialogue with people who are highly impacted by the problem that's in the play, um, whether it's highlighting things via street theater to passersby or whether it's, um, trying to engage people in the advocacy work that another organization is doing. So I'm really enjoying the experiments there. Can you explain uh, what foreign theater is for anyone that might not know? Thank you. Absolutely. Um, So it's using a play to have a community forum, Um, but we don't do a play and then have a community forum, (laughs) Uh, or at least the theater doesn't stop for the forum part. Um, forum theater is when a group of people create a play um, that reflects a problem that they or their community are experiencing in, in real life. And they craft it so that the play really shows an unresolved problem. It shows the struggle. It shows them trying to get their needs met um, or trying to change something and the failure that happens. And so we have folks who are facilitating the performance, having an engagement with the audience. Those people in theater of the oppressed have the title of Joker. 
Um, and the Joker's, when the scene has has come to a close, in, they engage the audience in having a conversation about the play they just saw, identifying the problems they saw, so they can kind of speak that into the space and recognize the work of the actors. But then they invite individuals to come up and replay parts of the performance, specifically to step into the shoes of somebody who's experiencing a problem and try to do something differently. And we allow the improvisation to play out. When it's done, the the jokers facilitate a conversation to identify what happened, what did that person try to do, and how did it change the situation? And the thing that I really value about forum theater is I feel like it's a laboratory we're allowed to come together and try out ideas in different ways and then mine every improvisation for as much information as possible um, so that anybody who leaves the room after the play has some idea about something they could do about the problem in the future. That's like a very, that's a brief thing. And I can talk <laughs> epic <laughs> podcasts about that. But. Yeah. Oh yeah. There could definitely be so many podcasts about T.O. Yeah. I feel like a question a lot of people ask is why are they called jokers? I was wondering that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it references the joker in the deck of cards. Um, and, and as it's been told to me, Augusto Boal was thinking about that card being an identity that doesn't belong to any of the suits in the deck of cards. So an idea that that card is outside um, of the teams um, and that potentially is like outside of the biases. Um, and I think of that as outside enough to be able to provide a critical analysis of what's going on, because something that is very important in theater of the oppressed is a critical analysis of power dynamics. And so I also think about the Joker in relation to gestures and my understanding of gestures being a character that is in a very powerful place, a court and gets special dispensation to mess with the people in power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think zooming out just a little bit on Tio and Augusto Boal, who created Theater of the Oppressed in Brazil based on Paulo Freire's work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. They both have many books. They're amazing. Read them. And there are many different forms of different kinds of theater, not just forum theater. There's legislative theater, um, image theater, invisible theater, newspaper theater. Uh, that's all under the umbrella of Theater of the Oppressed. So how do you think Theater of the Oppressed NYC specifically is different from other theater companies? Well, the thing that seems to surprise everybody the most is that we don't have written scripts. <laughs> um, and that's because we are largely building off of improv. We're heading towards improv um, and it doesn't always serve our needs. Um, I do think people are desperate to start writing down some of our plays and we should, um, but how we operate is often bullet points. It's important to know the, the core of the scenario and any key things that a character needs to say and do. Um, I think it's also, you know, it's specific to us that we are working off of collaboration. We're always working off of people's lived experience. And it is important at Theater of the Oppressed NYC that the people who are on stage performing have lived experience with the scenarios that they're playing out. Um, that is something that other theater companies sound very surprised about when I describe it, because there is an assumption that professional actors um, are acting out other people's stories. Um, and that doesn't, doesn't really serve our approach to theater of the oppressed, because when we are inviting an audience member up onto the stage to improvise, we then need every other actor on the stage to be ready to represent reality. And because the improv improvisation could go anywhere, the it's their life is the research that informs them how, how to act as their character. Those are the top things on my mind, Holly. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And I know you must have noticed many things, but. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's amazing to watch a spectator from the audience come up and like, be like, I definitely have the solution to this problem. <laughs> and then see the actors who've experienced it tell you all the reasons why that wouldn't work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it highlights to me how much mainstream TV, movies, theater, um, if it's not informed, well, it may be informed by how these experiences play out in real life, but it may also have an agenda um, that's different from ours. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people are getting the media curated story about how homelessness works, um, about how employment discrimination works. And the most common thing, Holly, probably we both have seen is that a lot of our spectators who don't have lived experience of dealing with bureaucracy um, expect that if they are just nicer and more respectable, (laughs) Mm -hmm. they will have somebody listen to them more. Um, And that is very common. And that is also, you know, where our actors are able to share that it doesn't, their words and their attitudes um, changing doesn't really change the obstacles that they're facing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like because our funding and our budget model are so different from a lot of New York theater companies. Like all of our shows are free. We're not trying, we don't depend heavily on individual donors. So we're not really catering to people with big money. Um, you know, we still play the like foundation government grant game. Um, but it is a little different than I think a lot of other theater companies and how we are able to survive and sustain. Yeah. And actually I was just going to add, so I have been part of a project where we're trying to build a workbook to share the methodology that we're using more widely. Um, and I've been figuring out a section to really set expectations around how our approach is different than typical theater. And we're trying to figure out how to share that this idea of kind of working hard to one perfect product isn't our priority. So um, having everybody show up on time to start rehearsal on time <laughs> and then getting people in trouble if they don't isn't really our MO in part because we know that folks who are showing up to our rehearsals are navigating not having a Metro card or getting harassed by the police on the way, uh, having trying to get a job, um, their job not letting them out when they say they would. And for us to continue to welcome the folks uh, into the space, we are we devise ways to have flexibility around that while still guiding everybody to get prepared enough for a performance. Um, so there's some things like that, like you know, figuring out how to make the play and still welcome people how they are when they show up. Um, being open, you know, not having one director in the room who decides what the aesthetic or the de- decision is like really our jokers need to rely on checking in with the actors who have lived through the situation and thinking like we are crafting a version of your life to engage people in understanding the problem. So that's what we need to think about when we're making our creative decisions and it has to be collaborative. So we're all on the same page, things like that do set for me the creative process apart from things I have experienced when I've been an actor or director. And how do those values and ethics that you kind of discussed happening in the creative space, how does that also happen on the admin side of Theater of the Oppressed NYC? I'm grinning because I feel like Holly and I have been exploring this together. (laughs) When I started working administratively for TONYC, I think I, you know, and I said I I came from engineers uh, and whatever there is also about the culture I grew up in about things being perfect and exact was a high priority for me. Um, and I think that I personally in my administrative role found ways to understand the difference between getting it done right versus getting it done in a way that will serve the needs of the people involved. Um, and, and then it also, opening up opportunities to change our processes and procedures um, when we identify a need to. Um, 
and also being really alert to how our processes impact people. I, I joined a panel once where somebody asked me a question similar to this. And I described that when we do paperwork for our actors, we have a spot on the form for them to give us the name they want us to use in rehearsal. And then the name, the government name that needs to be on a check that goes to them because it's a high priority for us to make sure that everything we do is as accurate as possible so that they can cash that check. But it's also really important for us to be able to communicate across our organization what we should, how we should refer to people when they're in the room or when we're calling them up. And when I mentioned like, oh, well, of course we put the name that people want to use on the outside of the envelope. And then the check has the name that will get it cashed. There were people in that audience who were like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that is care um, to me. And I see that happening with my colleagues at the organization is understanding, you know, how do we do administrative tasks, but with care. Yeah. And I think just like offering so many options, like, I feel like we don't ever say like, you must fill out this form this way. And that's the only way you can access this thing. Like you can also call us and we'll help you fill out the form over the phone. If like getting on the internet is hard for you, like there are just so many different points of access to our work or we're trying to make it that way. Mm -hmm. So how does TUNYC partner with uh, LGBTQ communities specifically? You already talked about AFC and HMI. Um, can you talk about maybe like some of the shows and the topics they've created around or any other communities they've worked with? Yeah. Um, Ali Forney Center and Hetrick Martin Institute. We have had partnerships with them over the years um, where young people are making plays and um, some very prominent themes around uh, that, that were highlighted in those plays include really access, access to employment, uh, and, and really how employment hiring is a space where the owner of a company or their HR people just get to write people off from how they look or how they sound. Um, also access to youth spaces has been an incredible, incredibly informative theme to me, right? That, the spaces that are designed for LGBTQ young people in the city. And I think it really much, very much connects to the funding of these spaces. The funding has usually got a lot of demands. They want to know how many people identify this way, have this problem, have that problem, which means that the organization set up processes with long intakes that are very invasive. Um, and there has, there's a high level of procedure that has to happen in the space. And also the spaces are often overwhelmed. Uh, and so um, the young people are, have tried to reflect back, like this is a space that is supposed to be for me, but doesn't feel like it's for me. Um, and that, that has been a theme going along, which, you know, because we have been collaborating with Ali Forney Center for so long, um, I have also seen that over the years, the folks who saw what was happening in rehearsal and heard how these policies were impacting people um, expressed at least to me that they were being, were thinking about how to go away and continue to train people in the organization to adapt that way. Um, so Holly, were there other? Yeah. I was thinking like specifically about that AFC show where they talked about policies of AFC with like the staff members there felt pretty powerful. Oh, wow. Which one? Because I feel like I was part of several. <laughs> That's was true. Was that the one that was in Theater Row? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was there was one show in particular um, that there were scenes that showed young people trying to hang out in the youth space, a funder getting given a tour of the space by a staff member, and that really making the young people feel like they were being put on display, even to the level of being a zoo. And 
it was a, a send up really of like how the nonprofit industrial complex and, and social services impact the people they're supposed to be supporting in negative ways. And there were people there in the audience. There were a lot of, of staff of that organization there in the audience. And the thing is, like, I, I do feel like within these spaces, there's a, the staff is a mix. There are people who are there desperately wanting to conspire in some way with the young people. Um, and then there are are people who maybe don't don't feel like that is their priority. I am trying to remember the name of the fictional foundation. <laughs> oh, it was really there was like a song. Yeah, y'all are broke. Y'all are broke foundation. Right, <laughs> y'all are broke foundation. Thinking about the nonprofit industrial complex and the and nonprofit structure, um, and kind of bringing it back to theater. How do you think the nonprofit structure in theater creates barriers and harm? Ooh, um, I'll say this, you know, saying that like I know our nonprofit structure and I kind of get a sense of how that is happening in the theater world. And I see it a little more in the social service world because that's where TONYC collaborates more closely. But just this idea of like a board of directors um, being an authority over the space. Um, it's very strange to me. Theater of the Oppressed NYC has tried to be very thoughtful about um, providing compensation when we're asking people to work. And boards are volunteer. Um, and we have had awesome board members in the past uh, where I realized that like their awesomeness is based in their knowledge and their experience and then we really want them to bring that knowledge to the board meeting and they are struggling to come to the board meeting. And then when there's a problem and we're asking them to do more, like help us handle this crisis, they have their own nonprofit job or community organizing job. Right. Um, so it, it feels, you know, if, if, if this structure exists to hold us accountable, I am starting to question why we can't pay people to hold us accountable. And of course, you know, that like that's the question. It's like, can somebody really hold you accountable if you're paying them? But there's a, I think there's a gap of expecting people to do it for free. Mm -hmm. um, I think the structure where there is, um, you know, the hierarchy of staff um, is very strange across theater and our organization, this idea that an executive director or an artistic director is in charge of the vision. Um, and, you know, there are amazing people with amazing visions. What I saw play out as I watched um, Katie Rubin in that role was that as much as she tried to get people to talk to other folks in our organization, people wouldn't listen. They treated the entire organization as her project. Um, they, I even saw people tell her when they're like interviewing her how to talk about the organization because they didn't like how she was trying to distribute the credit. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's this, um, uh, culture of like this one per one special person has made it all happen um, that that hides all the work that happens um, around that person and yeah the well again nonprofit industrial complex is entire books and entire podcasts mm -hmm. um, but I you know I've been curious uh, I have had some conversations with people who do work in theater about the tensions between um, trying to produce the work they're excited about and their subscriber funder base. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, we are fortunate in that our funder base is really, um, you know, we write in the grants that we're trying to be disruptive around power. So we, we get to do that. And I realized that other theaters like that, that's not what they're, they've been given permission to do. So it's a greater challenge for them. Totally. And you're so right with the, I'd never really thought of the director thing, but it's such a call to personality. And I think that's why we see so many of the big companies. They're just immovable. Most people at the top because of that, they've like the press, everyone has just like kind of kept them in that spot. So yeah. 
Um, so flipping over to parenting as I continue to bring up, I think it's cause I'm an aspiring queer parent. So I'm like, really want to hear from you about this. Um, but our, our question for you is as, as a parent now, how has your relationship to theater changed and how can creating theater become more accessible to parents? Ooh. Um, well, I feel like I've been kind of grazing the articles in, in, uh, American theater magazine about this. <laughs> and I felt like I had to be very tentative about it because it felt painful. It was like, yes, I want those things to be happening. Oof. It's hard to realize that, um, most spaces are essentially just asking individuals to show up by themselves and get there however they get there. And they don't want to hear about what's happening outside of the space and your responsibilities. I mean, I think one of the topics also that has, has just been discussed in this year in ter terms of talking about how theater is accessible is like the schedule, right? It flabbergasts me to think about how auditions are expected to be at the drop of a hat. And that's not just about parenting. That's also about having a job, right? Right. That rehearsals um, are so like uh, rigorous, <laughs> like it's got to be every day and then it's got to be all of these hours of a day. And so, you know, we are all in this holding space where we aren't gathering and rehearsals are happening in different ways, maybe over online or not at all. But I am curious if I am producing work outside of TUNYC um, or get to be on a project with somebody else, how a project could be designed. So we're, we still get to create together, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that we drop everything for. Yeah, definitely. It's like impossible. I mean, like yeah. having a dog and keeping a theater schedule is hard, let alone taking care of actual humans. <laughs> like. Right. And also just like being able to participate, you know, and I know people do it, yeah, continue to go see shows every weekend or several times uh, a week. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, if I know that they have a baby at home, I'm like, what is the arrangement you have with your partner? Um, <laughs> how does that work? So I know people are doing it. <laughs> it's just like, I know for me, like the rhythm is, has been a bit exhausting. Um, and also the, you know, the money it's like trying to, to see a show. And if the ticket is, is more than $30. I still kind of like raise my eyebrows a bit, <laughs> which I, I know for me is intention with realizing that like money makes things happen and you can pay people more. Yeah. Okay. So I think we're going to jump over to queering the canon, which is a section we do every show. And you already gave us a great example of queering the canon with your back of the non-gay bar drag situation. That you described. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'd love to hear if there are any other shows from the theatrical canon that you would like to perform in or direct or just see queered in some way. Uh, you know, this was a challenging question when you sent it over in advance. Um, but I, what it, what it led me to was that I remembered the play that I wanted to have as my senior project, as a directing project, um, which I found by accident in my college library. Um, it was by a, a playwright named Eduardo Manet, and it was called The Nuns. I didn't end up doing it as my senior project. I ended up acting in somebody else's um, directing project, but. It's a play that features three or four nuns um, who are uh, in Haiti uh, during um, the uprising, uh, the revolution. And so they're trying to figure out a plan of escape. And I wanted to direct it with those nuns being in drag. And as I've been like trying to remembering it since, and as I've gotten to know, you know, physical theater land, I've got to know a lot of clowns. <laughs> um, I like, I want white male clowns <laughs> to play these nuns who are panicking for their lives. Um, as people take back their land <laughs> <laughs> and, and the, you know, I don't remember a ton of the details in the play, but they are, one of the details is that they are also horrible to each other. So it lent itself to the promise of like lots of possible like physical um, comedy <laughs> or violence, <laughs> um, you know, as well as, as um, you know, something interesting about like panic 
mm-hmm. um, in a place where you're not even supposed to be. So, yeah, that was what was came back to me as something that had been a project in my head that I never got to do. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, I hope you get to do it one day. I hope so. I would have to reread the text, you know, like I'm going off of like a 20 year old memory of the text, but. I love anything with like queer, queering nuns. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Always. We have one other querying the canon question for you. Uh, is there a nonprofit in theater institution that you would like to queer? Like take all their money and take all their resources and just be like, Ooh, we're going to give all of this to the queer folk. It was hard for me to pick one. Um, in part because the, the, I, it, when you say that to me, it means dismantling work, right? Mm-hmm. And I would rather just like that, that those resources get built, but I was like a, a little like, I I did dream a little of like, could Broadway just be queer or like one Broadway space mm. um, that just is queer? Because I feel like mainstream population thinks that Broadway is this very queer space, but I don't think that queer people feel that way. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, to have like the giant big production level that comes in a Broadway house um, that is entirely run by queer people. Yeah. Uh, yes. Let it be so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And so outside of theater or it, it could be theater, I guess there's just not a lot to reference right now. What, what is your current like queer culture uh, obsession or recommendation or indulgence that you're enjoying? Well, my longstanding um, indulgence is books. Um, and so I am, a reader, my my preferences lean towards sci-fi fantasy, and if I can get it, um, that it's queer as well, that's awesome. I think Holly knows that I've consumed most of Samuel Delaney's work, and so something I'm struggling with right now is that, like, I of course try to find out newer writers um, and their works, but because a lot of because of how publishing works, um, you know they maybe have one book out and I am a, like, I will read everything by an author person. Um, so, you know, like that's what I did when I was young with like Toni Morrison and like Octavia Butler. And like, <laughs> it, it's just like, I'm hungry for at least 10 books to tear my way through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, as I try to hunt for, book recommendations is usually like, well, this person has one and this book is getting released in 2021. Right. (laughs) So if anybody listens and knows me and can send me more recommendations or wants to be friends on Goodreads, uh, I am excited for more to read. Cool. So we'll move to our queer gives section uh, where we shout out different orgs um, or uh, cooperatives or mutual aid funds that support the LGBTQ communities. Uh, and you wanted to shout out trans boxing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I know I have a, a friend who lives in um, in Oregon who is a dancer who was visiting last year and who said, you know, I know this person who runs trans boxing because I was kind of moaning about being a parent and not getting enough exercise. Um, and something I, I feel like is a reality of like how I've tried to be physical as well is that like I'm trying to find spaces that feel exciting to me. I'm interested in martial arts and dance. And usually those are very cis spaces. <laughs> Um, or run predominantly by heterosexual men. And I can manage myself in those spaces, but it gets annoying. Um, and so trying to find, you know, you know, I find that more than exercising or attending class, I'm spending time on the internet trying to find recommendations of spaces. So I was very excited when my friend Taka gave me this recommendation. I wanted to check it out, but the, Logist, the, the travel logistics and the schedule didn't work until the pandemic hit and they moved their classes online. So I, and they, they did it also by donation, um, and opened it, uh, more widely to anybody who identifies as LGBTQ. So most Wednesday nights I have been tuning in, um, and learning boxing for the first time which felt very cohesive for me in the energy of wanting to hit things. Um, but also, you know, and I never thought about doing a Zoom class 
And, uh, you know, I have noticed, you know, how my strength builds up or how my skills have adjusted since. And so it's really interesting. They are doing um, a hefty fundraiser right now because they got offered a, a space in Bushwick to set up at their, as their own gym. They've been holding classes in, in boxing gyms, but they're trying to now offer a space um, where trans and gender nonconforming people um, can come and, and attend lessons together. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to check that out. That's so cool. <laughs> well, I think last but not least, how can our listeners find you or Theater of the Oppressed online? Theater of the Oppressed NYC is at www.tonyc.nyc. And we have a handle, um, which is Forum Theater NYC. Uh, I'm also, I am on Twitter uh, as Codenim, C-O-D-E-N-I-M-M. Um, and I post there too. Sulu is an excellent tweeter. <laughs> I think that's funny because I feel like I'm just like, I'm, I'm there and I spy and I, I feel like I learn, um, a lot. Uh, and as a parent, I do feel like Twitter for me has been a space to be like understanding and processing what's happening in the world in really interesting ways. Um, even if I can't sit down with people and talk about it or tune into the, the video or whatever, I, I really do scroll Twitter while I'm putting the kids to bed, <laughs> while I'm waiting for them to pee or poop. Um, and it, it's wonderfully rich. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for making time for us today. And I hope you enjoy your boxing class after this. Yeah, it's a seven. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you again, Sula. This has been great. Thank you both. I'm sure I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> yes, tomorrow, <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like, please rate and review us and share us with your friends. Come back for more interviews, fun queer content, recommendations, and eventually discussions on current theater. We are so excited to hear your queer culture recommendations or any of your ideas on how we could queer the canon. You can call us, yes, actually call us and leave us a voicemail at 845-445-9251 or send us an email at thesisonjoan at gmail.com. And follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at thesisonjoan. Until next time, keep it queer. Not that it'd be that hard for y'all to do. I am trying to remember the name of the fictional foundation. <laughs> Was it We Got Y'all? No, it. Um, That's great, though. <laughs> oh, it was really. It was it was less friendly than We Got Y'all. It was uh, it was like you don't have any money, Foundation, or like something like Y'all are broke. Y'all are broke, Foundation. Right. <laughs> y'all are broke, Foundation. Um, oh, we got y'all from Insecure. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.